Welcome to the Informed Simplicity Project, a place for students looking for the informed simplicity on the far side of complexity. This is your host, Jordan Harris, and today I have uh, somebody I'm super excited to have on, Sherry Geller, who is, um, as far as I can tell, the preeminent researcher on presence in therapy. And I think if you've met anyone who's an incredible therapist, they always have this sort of sense of presence about them. So I'm super excited to get into this interview and Sherry, if you just want to give us a brief introduction on yourself and then we can dive in. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Jordan, and for making this available to your students and others. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm a mindful self-compassion teacher and also have a lifetime passion towards training therapists in cultivating therapeutic presence. So whether it's training or writing or researching, it's really such a foundational principle, which we're gonna talk about today. Um, so as much as it's a simple concept, I can write hundreds of pages on how. And you have, <laughs> and you have. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so before we get into that, I always like to sort of set the scene, all right? Um, how did you get into counseling? as a field? How'd you get into the psychotherapy side of things? Yeah, well, I, I mean, it probably comes from initially having complex family relationships, right? Yeah. And, you know, parents separated when I was young and a few times back and forth and some difficult relationships with my parents and kind of that interest in people. But it wasn't so prominent for me that that was going to be the direction because my dad's an accountant and I'm really good with math and I like numbers. So when I went to university, I, I started on this path. I'm in Toronto now, but I went in London, Ontario uh, to Western and I was registered in math as my major. And I sat in the math class in the first week and thought, okay, this, I, the language is easy for me, but it was the wrong place. It did not feel like my my peers, it didn't feel like it was in the right place. So I quickly got to the registration office and switched all my courses over to psychology and never oh. looked back. Wow. Um, so, I mean, that's fascinating because most of us don't come to this field in that way. <laughs> most of us are not, uh, you know, uh, quantitative people. We're, we're more qualitative people, which that's is right. a huge skill, I think, that you bring to this field then. So then how do you go from that into like presence? Because there's so many things and you study with some really amazing people. Yes, I've been very lucky. But you picked the presence as like, this is the thing I'm going to sort of hone in on. Yeah, I mean, that's a really, you know, the foundational experience of probably this whole path and the seeds of that are, you know, now go a little forward in my teenage years and my mother died when I was 19 mm. and it was very sudden. It was a lung tumor, a brain tumor. It spread very fast and eight months of symptoms to diagnosis to passing on. So, wow. you know, as a 19 year old with complex relationships and all of that, it was obviously really difficult. And I really struggled after both personally, you know, not just the complicated grief, but also I had stomach pain and I think I'd have stomach cancer or I'd have, mm. you know, throat pain. I think I'd have throat cancer because my mom had a headache and she had brain cancer. So right. it was a lot of anxiety and somatic symptoms. And I would go to the emergency room at different times with pretty severe stomach issues, which actually I 
did turn out to be irritable bowel syndrome, but at the time that wasn't really a prominent diagnosis. And they checked for things, they found small things going on, but nothing major until one physician said, why don't you see a, an emotion doctor, I think he said. Called <laughs> so I went to see this psychiatrist in Toronto who was pretty psychoanalytic. And he sat and um, looked like he was listening, let's say, but he was, he was a presence, but he was a detached presence. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't say much. And I once passed him to go to the washroom and I saw doodling on his pad. And I kept thinking, oh, this doesn't feel good. But I stuck with it because I was interested in psychology. And I thought, well, at least I'll learn what not to do, or I'm a persistent person, you know? And then yeah. it was one day when his eyes really drooped and he nodded off and fell asleep for like a second. And I just thought, okay, I'm done. That's it for me. <laughs> so I left that therapy relationship. Oh, man. Wow. And I am sorry that happened to you. That is. It was, it was formative, um, oh, but I left man. that relationship and thought, and I felt actually more alone and more yeah. troubled, you know, and a number of months later, someone said, why don't you see this person, Beverly, who is a, you know, she was one of the first mindfulness teachers in Toronto and a psychotherapist. And I went to see her and it was a completely different experience. I mean, she was so what I would now call present. She knew what I was feeling before I knew it. Mm -hmm. I felt really safe with her in the room. I started to talk about things that I just didn't even know were inside of me, yeah. probably because I felt so safe. And that was probably the seed that started my curiosity at what was this ingredient, this missing ingredient in therapy that was so essential. And then, you know, bring me a few years later into graduate school um, and working with Leslie Greenberg, who's an emotion-focused therapist and founder of emotion-focused therapy. Right. And I proposed it to him. It took him a little while because he's oriented towards techniques, but then he really recognized the importance of studying this and kind of supported my work on it. And I was also, I should say, simultaneous to this. Um, I began meditation over 30 years ago. So there was this mindfulness meditation um, interest and experience I had that coincided with my interest in therapy and my interest in how we bring ourselves into the room that creates a safe and important and helpful space for our clients. So that were the that's the seeds that started this lifetime journey I'm on. Wow, that's an incredible story. And I love the contrast. <laughs> such, a, such a stark contrast. You yeah. know, um, I'm a big fan. And you can obviously say no to this. I'm a big fan of the common factors research. Yes. Uh, which, which you've contributed to, right? And I, I guess to sort of give us a little bit of, a, of more of a picture, how, if you want to, how long were you with that first therapist and how long were you with that, that second therapist? That's a good question. So I was with the first therapist, I would say at least six months. I mean, I really stuck with it because I didn't, I, I'm a persistent person and I stuck with it thinking I'm going to learn what not to do or something. But the second therapist is much longer. I saw her offer, off and on for, for years, for yes. a few years. You know, and I think, you know, if you look at the common factors research, one of the big things that they, that they talk about is client dropout. Mm -hmm. And you're giving us this beautiful ex experience from a client's perspective, right? Of like, the first one, I dropped out because they weren't present. Yeah. And the second one, totally different experience. Um, and it was a beautiful relationship. That's, yes. I mean, that's 
perfect. Yeah. So um, what is presence then, right? Sort of an obvious question, but, you know, I think you're going to have a unique perspective on it. You know, I mean, it's it's an evolving thing. So I'll tell you about the model that we discovered early in our research, which really is the foundation of, of what I see. But just as a general, I think it's, you know, bringing ourselves fully in the moment in the room with our clients, you know, physically is the easy one, emotionally, um, cognitively, spiritually, even relationally. And, but it's not just an in my own experience, it's a relational experience, right? It's happening between us. I, I bring myself and prepare myself and bring myself in that way. And that creates a safe space where clients can become safer and more present. And then something develops between us, almost like Martin Buber talks about these I-thou relationships or this kind of deep meeting. In terms of the kind of overarching model of presence, you know, one of the things we found and have, um, developed more and more, it's an empirically validated model that there's three overarching categories of, of presence, of therapeutic presence. One is an embodied experience, you know, an experience in the body of the therapist. And that has four components. Therapists are, and they're interconnected, these components. So therapists are grounded in themselves. So very centered, steady, um, solid in that way also a sense of immersion with the other person, like very immersed with clients, immersed with their emotional experiences, fully, you know, in the intricacies of what the client is saying and sharing and experiencing. And those, I'll, I'll just pause before I go to the other two. These all go together, even though I'm separating them for understanding purposes. If I'm just grounded, I could be quite detached, right? I could just be looking at you from afar. If I'm so immersed and not grounded, I could get overwhelmed and anxious and take on my client's experience. So it's how these go together. And then along with this third experience, this experience of spaciousness, that even, you know, amidst all of the suffering that I'm feeling with you and this groundedness, there's a larger expansive state of, you know, both that I know we're okay in all of this larger backdrop of experience of spaciousness, expansion, um, even an expanded perspective of, I know what's happening for you in this moment, but I'm also holding the larger picture of your life, your goals, your, our therapy goals, all of those kinds of things. And then the fourth quality is probably what, what makes it therapeutic presence as opposed to just presence in relationship. So I'm grounded, immersed in the moment, there's a larger sense of expansion. And the fourth quality is with and for the other or compassion. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm present in service of someone's healing, in service of my client's healing. And that's that compassion component. So that's the embodied experience category. The second overarching category is the process of presence, which is, you know, what am I doing while I'm being present? What's happening in the room with my client while I'm being present? And that has three qualities that are cyclical. They kind of keep going with each other, which is, you know, I'm a receptive and open, you know, taking in the experience of the other, attuning to my client, really taking, resonating with them, taking that experience in. The second is I'm attuning to myself at the same time, you know, both to feel how is their experience feeling in me? What do I know about psychotherapy research? And, and, and what do I know about this person and what's helpful? It's not a cognitive process, but those things all mix together. 
and then uh, meeting and extending to the other and making contact. So I'm, I'm receptive and open, I'm checking and tuning to myself and then I'm reaching out to them. It could be in silence or an empathic gesture or an intervention, but I'm constantly going through this process. And then the third overarching category is that preparing the ground or intentional. Presence is intentional. So it's intentional both in my own life, outside of the therapy room. You know, there's a commitment to qualities of presence, to my own relationships, to taking care of myself, um, to having, you know, for me, a, a mindful or self-compassion practice, taking walks in nature could be different for other people. And there's a intentional process when I enter in the therapy room and in the room itself. So taking a few minutes before a session to ground myself, center myself, get myself ready before I enter in, as well as remind myself if I get distracted to come back to the moment. So that intention is always there. So those are kind of the overarching kind of categories that I see as describing therapeutic presence and what we, our empirically validated model has shown us. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, it reminds me of, um... Some of the work of, uh, I don't know if you know him, Stephen Gilligan. He's, I know a little bit of his work. Yeah. yeah. But his stuff is not validated at all, right? It's more of like his, uh, his understanding of it. But you have this like really strong research base under it. Yeah. Which, which, is, which is a whole other thing that we, I think we need to be bringing and relying more on is the, is the research side of, side of things. And it's often our kind of experience, like as you're describing with Stephen Gilligan, that in, like all theorists start with their own experience. And right. then we do the research to kind of say, oh, yeah, that's that's a language to say it makes sense. It makes yeah. sense. So um, if I can play devil's, devil's advocate, I could see people who are listening to this and they'd say, well, you know, there's that really popular concept of like flow. How is this? How is this different? Yeah, flow is is maybe a part of it, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when I'm really in a deep relational present moment with my client and it's got that deeper, I call it kind of a relational therapeutic presence, there's a real flow aspect to it. And flow is a part of the embodied experience, but presence has so much more to it as well. It's about what we're doing out of the therapy room, what we're doing in the therapy room, what I'm doing while I'm being with clients in that attuning to myself, attuning to others, um, reaching out. There's, there's just a much broader kind of understanding of what happens, even though flow is a component of it. Okay. So you would say flow is a part of it, but it's not the whole. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. And then like, how do you therapist, like how does this change the client? Well, I think, right. you know, some of, I think, you know, if I would sum it up in one word, I would, safety. Hmm. It creates safety for them to do deeper therapeutic work. You know, some of the, um, I've done a paper, a couple papers with Stephen Porges, who has developed, I don't know if you know, the polyvagal theory. Yeah, yeah. And I feel the polyvagal therapy really explains what happens in presence, because there's this bi-directional attunement, right? We know from neuroscience that we are, we are bi-directionally attuned. Our brains are wired in relationship. We're feeling each other all the time, right? And so there's different components of that. If I'm being a grounded presence for my clients, their nervous system can 
attuned with my nervous system and allow them to feel calm and safer so they feel safe to open up and do the deeper work of psychotherapy or deeper emotional work that they, they're doing. So that is one aspect. The other is I'm able to read what's going on more with the client if I'm in an open and receptive place and not filled with my own kind of stuff in my head or otherwise, because my nervous system is reverberating with theirs. So I can pick up nuances that are happening through reading my body in relationship to their bodies. Mm-hmm. And then the other aspect is using our you know, using ourselves in a way to um, attune moment to moment to what's happening, right? So, you know, I may have this whole plan, we're going to talk today about, you know, your unfinished business with your father, and it might be something much more subtle that's coming up for you that's really important that I need to really pay attention to and listen to. So it's like reading the moment in that, in that way. I think maybe I've lost the thread of your question. I started to answer it, but... I think that that's... I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me, right? It's like, okay, this helps clients first because it cultivates safety for them, which allows them to sort of maybe, um, first of all, feel safe, which yeah. is a lot of therapy, according to, poly, to polyvagal theory. Yes, yes. Also, it helps me to be present to where they are in, in the moment. Which is going to be helpful to them. Which is helpful to them, yeah. Understood. They're feeling, right. as Dan would say, feeling felt. That's and exactly what I was thinking. It seems like you're also more able to tap into that felt sense. Yes, very yeah. much. And the other aspect, I would add a couple more. One is that it exercises, the, it doesn't just create safety in the moment for clients, but it exercises the neural muscles for safety. Mm. So clients through repetitive experiences of feeling safe, in relationship can start to eventually be feel safe in other relationships, which is what we ultimately want for our clients, right? Yeah. Um, and it also deepens the alliance, the therapeutic alliance, which we know relates to outcome. So yeah. if clients feel safer with us, if they're um, opening up more, if we're in tune with your goals, in tune with um, what we're doing here and our relationship is strong, then it's going to, it's going to contribute to a positive yeah. Um, so, I mean, I've known people who've been incredibly present and I've known people who haven't been present. And I know at times, you know, I have two small kids right now, which is this weird mixture of having to constantly be present and then constantly not being able to be present. <laughs> like when someone's always yelling in the background, so you can't have a conversation. Yeah. But you gotta, you gotta be aware of what's going on. <laughs> so I think the question is like, is this something that we can reliably train in people? Yes. I think a lot of people are going to say, well, some people are just born with it. You know? I think that's true. Some people have it a bit more naturally, right? I don't know if Carl Rogers went through a big training or, you know, he's got it naturally. Lester Greenberg's a good example. He's very present in his therapy, but it's a very natural component for him. And it is trainable. And I think that's really underneath a lot of my life's vision is how do we train in this? And there's been in the past few years, a lot more research that's come out about the trainability of therapeutic presence, which has been really amazing and exciting. Things like using mindfulness, using self-compassion. There's been programs using improv theater um, to cultivate presence in therapists, you know, so they're reading the moment and going with the moment, but programs that have 
put together different kinds of elements to train on some of these components of presence are then showing in the research that therapists feel more capable of being present and so do their clients at the end of the training than not. So yes, it is trainable, but I'm happier to say now there's research that's actually supporting that. So how do you how do you train that, right? If if students wanted to go and learn, okay, how do I how do I increase my ability to be present? What's the first step for them? Yeah, I mean we're put we're I do a lot of trainings and we're putting together a training program to pay larger level, my vision is that it's a fundamental module in psychotherapy mm. training. That's what I'd like to see, you know. Moving forward. Now. I've been wanting to see it by now, but you know, somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and that module would include things like first training in the embodied experience and, you know, being able to ground. Um, how do I listen to someone else in a way that I'm tuning to their nonverbals? Um, those kinds of things. So dyadic practices, being able to, so first within self, being able to cultivate a sense of presence through, like I said, mindfulness meditation, self-compassion, um, grounding practices, um, those kinds of things. Then there are dyadic relational practices, you know, being able to listen to another student or, you know, I'm saying another student, if there's two students kind of role-playing together a therapy, um, well, practicing what is it what is it like to attune to myself when you're talking and then and then focusing on the strength of attuning to someone else while they're doing that there's some there's some particular practices we have for all these different aspects in the model and even intentional there that aspect the third component that I was saying you know there was some research done that showed that therapists who did some kind of centering practice five minutes before walking into a session had better session outcome and better therapeutic alliance than therapists who didn't do that. So there's different pre-session practices like, you know, like I said, a centering practice or I have a practice called that uses the acronym of presence to pause in the moment, you know, relax into your body is the R, expand your breath is the E, sense your inner body, you know, just sensing what's happening inside um, expand your awareness is the E to expand your environment and what's going on outside. Then N is kind of notice the relationship between the internal and the external. So feeling my internal world while noticing what's around, then recentering, which is C, and then extending and opening the door for the client. Mm. So through repetition of those kinds of practices, it builds the neural muscles to be able to access that experience more readily, more easily, both mm. prior and when we're in session. So that's that intentional aspect. But there are a whole bunch of different practices that yeah. are designed for each aspect of the model. Even just you sort of going through that, I think it's a nice, I don't know, it has a nice feel to it. Okay, I'm here, I'm in the moment. Yeah. Yeah, because it allows you to both connect inwardly for a moment mm -hmm. to pause. I mean, pausing is such an essential aspect of presence, right? Students want to, when they respond to clients, they feel like they have to have the right answer and the right word and yeah. the right way of saying it really quickly. But to be able to pause and check in with, oh, what are, how am I feeling this? What's actually happening for them? And what a practice does, it teaches you to pause a little bit, to sense your inner world, which... Um, uh, strengthens interoception, that, that sensing of internal, 
to sense your outer world, including others, which is strengthens exteroception, the neural pathway to be able to sense outwardly, and then to feel the relationship between myself and others, which is ultimately all the elements of presence. So to walk yeah. through a practice like that, that holds all those elements, allows you to strengthen. And it's not enough just that one practice, it's kind right. of doing a bunch of different things, but uh, yeah. in life, in your relationships and in with other students. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, when I was reading the articles that you sent out and um, preparing for this interview, one of the big questions that I had was, I feel like modern society is not set up for this. You know, <laughs> like I feel like we have notification, I mean, at least maybe it's just me, but I go to a restaurant, there's a TV in the background and I like, I can't sit in this seat because I can't, I can't listen to you if that's I on in the background. Yeah. So what would you say are sort of um, the biggest um, blocks or barriers to, to presence that, that people yeah, have? I mean, so one is what you're saying, right? Technology is really, I mean, technology is wonderful. It's offered us a lot of opportunities to look at- We can talk right now and you're in Canada, right? It's like, it's a beautiful thing. Exactly. So the fact that we're talking with each other, the fact that there's a lot of good meditation apps, there's, it's, it's, there's so much technology has offered us. Yet, as we know, you know, even watching that kind of disturbing movie, Social Dilemma is an example. I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it, yeah. Right? They're designed to pull our attention and to, oh, there's this interest and this interest and or watching a YouTube channel is designed to, oh, bring up something that's close to the interest that you just saw and to keep pulling you in. So it's a real pull of our attention. So we have to kind of take control in that way to sit, to put it down, to be aside. There's other barriers though. There's our own self-judgments, you know, imposter syndrome, self-criticism, shame as therapists, you know, all of these kinds of things. So to be not being in touch with our own inner world, not um, knowing our emotional world or being able to connect with it, doing our own work. So all of these barriers need attention and need to be worked with. So with the outside end, like technology, I think being merely mindful, some ways it's very connecting. Like we're having a moment where we really get to connect with each other, right? And this wouldn't have happened otherwise. And it can be very disconnecting right? Sitting, the, not only those poles, but in rooms with other people where you're trying to connect and they're, you know, picking up their phone every two seconds or otherwise. So we need to kind of really manage the, the pole that's designed in these devices to take us out of the moment. And we need to work with our inner world to know, to pause enough throughout the day to know what do we feel? What do I feel when you say that to me? Am I feeling kind of hurt to be able to communicate that? to work with my own self-criticism or self-doubt, especially as students, that's a big one, right? With some compassion, self-compassion practices and understanding and being able to know, we, of course, we make mistakes and this is all part of it. And, you know, learning how to pause and read our inner world and to understand and develop empathy. You know, there's empathy training to be able to, you know, develop a sense of how to understand someone else. So there's, there's a lot of effort and work and probably... Um, working with barriers is the most important because presence is kind of a natural state. And when we can remove the barriers or work with them, it becomes more accessible. Yeah, I love what you're saying. I mean, it almost sounds like what you're saying is there's the external and there's the internal. Yeah. 
And sometimes we use the external because we don't, because it's hard for us to be present with our own experience if there's mm-hmm. self-doubt or self-criticism. So we have to also deal with the internal. Otherwise, it, you know, it, you're only dealing with half of the, half of the uh, barrier. Yeah, and it gets in the way in that, yeah. And do you like recommend, you, you mentioned a second ago, like um, checking in with yourself throughout the day. Like, do you have like a formal check-in process that you do twice a day or do you do like mostly in the morning or? Well, I have, I mean, I'm not saying one needs to do this to mm-hmm. cultivate presence, but for me, I meditate twice a day. I have for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's probably a little bit more of a self-compassion practice because I'm a mindful self-compassion teacher. And I just think the benefit of that is so great. So I have these two, when I wake up in the morning, uh, before I start my day and then before dinner. So it kind mm-hmm. of sh- let's go of the day and into the evening. But I think even just intentionality around pausing before walking in the therapy room in that intentional way, right? Having a ritual to kind of close your day and close what's going on and walk, you know, sometimes when I was in an office right now, I'm still virtual with my clients. So I walk around the block, right? But walking to let go of the day, doing something at the end, especially now that we're online and a lot of, for many people, their therapy practice is in their house, right? Right now during Mm -hmm. the pandemic. So being, having even more intention to kind of, okay, not just close the computer and walk, open that door, which is the rest of the family or might be no, your roommate or no one else. um, But being able to kind of close down, to let go, to imagine, you know, going through the bottom of your feet, letting go of anything that's not yours, regrounding or centering. And I also think pausing between clients. Yeah. You know, Maybe some people can do it well. I cannot op- close the door for one client and open the other or yeah. close the screen for one and open the other. I need to intentionally let go of the client that I just did, whether it be writing notes, you know, just releasing, doing a, a grounding practice, standing for a moment, and then preparing myself to let go- open up some- to someone else. So those intentional pauses help to let go, but also pauses say, hey, what's happening for me right now? before reacting, before sending that email and yeah. pressing the button on send or that text that gets you in trouble, right? Like, <laughs> and I've done those, believe me. As um, we all have, as we all as have. we all have. But pausing to think, well, what's really happening for me in this moment? Doing some regulation before moving into responsivity to others versus reactivity. Yeah. I mean, I think it sounds like for you, you're incredibly congruent. Because it also sounds like you're practicing that kind, that kindness, that loving kindness, that compassion, and that's such an integral part of um, how you're talking about presence, right? Yeah. I'm present, and part of what I'm doing in that moment is being curious and, and compassionate with whatever my experience is, so that that I can then offer my presence to someone else. Yes. Yeah. yeah very much. I mean, I don't think it can just happen in the therapy room. Mm-hmm. I think it needs to happen in life with yourself, with your own relationships, you know, yeah. all those kinds of moments feed your capability to do that with yeah. it. With a cl- and it also sounds like for you having rituals and routines sort of helps. Yeah. So I have, I do it in the morning I do it before dinner. I also yeah. do it put, between each client. Do you, yeah. do you do this with your clients as well? Do you have them set up a, 
times they're checking with themselves or? Well, one of the things I do with clients and in, in not everyone I do this with, and sometimes I wonder what gets in the way of me doing with everyone, but maybe I'm leaving the moment, um, is to take a mindful pause with them at the beginning mm-hmm. of the set. You know, oftentimes people are coming with a lot of um, busyness or surface stuff before you get down to what's really here. Yeah. So taking a moment together to say, okay, let's just take a moment, you know, take a few breaths together, feel your feet on the ground, let go of where the busyness of where you've come from, just check in. Uh, what do you notice emotionally in your body right now? You know, what are you aware of physically? And what feels really kind of essential or poignant to talk about today? And just being with that for a moment and giving them a few moments to kind of check in with themselves before they start to begin to talk. And I find doing that allows clients to um, put down the many surface layers they talk about for 15 minutes before getting mm-hmm. <laughs> you've had that experience too huh i've like... had that experience a lot yeah <laughs> that's funny there also is um you know as a mindful self-compassion teacher sometimes i'm also incorporating self-compassion practices that that clients can do. I tend to be an emotion focused therapist. That's my dominant kind of therapy style and integrating mindfulness and self-compassion in with that. And I allow, you know, there's a new program actually coming out, which is really exciting called SKIP, Self-Compassion and Psychotherapy. It's a certification program for therapists to, and it's got these three components to it, therapeutic presence, um, the relationship, And the third is clinical intervention, teaching self-compassion practices to clients. And it's really powerful. It's just being launched in March, but it's um, having practices with their clients, if they're wanting that, if they're open and willing, some people just don't want it. And you have to be aware not to say, oh, this is the latest, greatest thing. You've got to try this Um, as much as offer invitations for practices clients can do in between sessions because they see us for, one hour yeah you know and there's one hour a week when there's like i don't have my math brain on me right now because i've turned into psychology but there's 24 (laughs) i think it's 168 (laughs) hours in a week yeah and they see you for like one of them right 168 hours and you only have one yeah so having even if it's just inviting them hey just pause through the week check in what's happening for me with the sense of care and compassion towards yourself you know, if someone has an addiction, kind of pause before, even if you still reach out for the addiction, even if you still reach out for the phone or the binging or the spending, what it might be, just pause. What's happening for me? And still, if you go ahead and do that, that's okay. But just to start to generate more space yeah. between impulse and reaction. How, how have you noticed this of impacting your clients? Well, sort of before I ask that question, um, you are a very busy person, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that you're still seeing clients. Are you still seeing clients? Are you more full-time research, more full-time training? What do you, what's your sort of breakdown? Um, I'm still, I'm, my breakdown is too much. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm seeing clients not as a full-time practice because I have other, I'm supervising. I have a center in Toronto called Center for Mind, Body, Health. Um, where we, where I'm supervising client uh, associates and kind of running that practice. I'm writing about presence. I'm 
you know, now working on a revision of the first book. Um, and I'm doing trainings and a lot of trainings in presence or presence and self-compassion. That's the dominant end. I'm more peripheral in the research, kind of supporting other people's research or consultation around it. But I would say those are the three main areas is teaching trainings, therapy and supervision. Oh, okay. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so how have you seen this impact your clients? When you say this, do you mean presence or do you mm -hmm. mean? Yeah. How, how, I mean, how have you seen your, your dedication to being present impacting clients? Uh-huh. My clients are general clients. I mean, I would say. Your clients think, in general. Okay. I mean, I think my hope is that they feel safe with me. Mm. My hope is that people are. And what I hear from people, and I'm not always great at it, right? I mean, this is sometimes right. I'm too busy in it and I've lost the moment. Right. And But that's actually just to say something that's okay too, because there's opportunities for therapeutic ruptures and repairs yeah. and being able to be authentic and congruent with that. But my hope is they feel safe and they can do deeper therapeutic work, go deeper into emotions, um, really go to places that they're, they didn't even know they had in them to be able to process some difficult grief or loss or otherwise trauma, particularly, you know, and being able to access trauma that they weren't able to because they feel safe in the room. Yeah. 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 It reminds me of, um, I read this book once, um, it was, it was a conversation between Paul Ekman and the Dalai Lama and, um, Paul Ekman had this really intense experience with the Dalai Lama that really shifted a lot of internal uh, anger that he had for a long time. And he keeps asking the Dalai Lama, like, how did you do that? How did you do that? And the Dalai Lama's answer is basically like, you know, I'm fully present and I meditate on compassion. And, and Paul Ekman's like, but what are you doing? It's like, he doesn't quite get that. Like, the Dalai Lama is saying like, there's a lot that happens, man, if we can just be present with each other fully. Absolutely. There's a lot that happens. It's very powerful. And to have that kind of relational moment with someone, I mean, I feel really honored being able yeah. to enter into the depths of someone's trauma and emotional world and to be let in in that way. Yeah. Um, but just to come back to what you're saying, I mean, it's a great example because the Dalai Lama just embodies that kind of compassionate presence. But he, he doesn't do it. He didn't just wasn't just born with it. He practices several hours a day and has yeah. he was a kid, right? So talk about the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. hours yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's wavy on that. But, yeah. he, you know, he wakes up at four. He has a practice. Then, you know, watches the news to see what's happening in the world. And then eats his breakfast and then has another practice. And he's got several tens, if not hundreds of thousands of hours of practice that allow him to create the state that creates a sense of uh, wonderment and safety for other people to feel that sense of transformation. And I think it is a good example because we sometimes look at people like the Dalai Lama and say, oh, he's just got it naturally. I think he's worked hard at it. And I think he continues to dedicate his life to that kind of compassionate um, state that he embodies so beautifully. Yeah, yeah. 
So look, we're coming up on our time. I want to be very respectful of you. Um, so I have just a few more questions and then we'll wrap it up, okay? Yeah. Um, so you've got your hands in a lot of different things. Um, and you've also talked to a lot of people, right? You've written with people who I admire, right? Like Stephen Porges and Leslie Greenberg and and others. And I guess the question I have for you is from, from where you stand in the field, what do you feel like is on the edge of the field? Something that we should all be paying attention to um, that will be sort of be common knowledge in 10 years, right? Obviously you're on the edge, but if you were to look at the tip of the spear, what would you say is sort of right? I mean, I'd like to start by saying, and it's kind of emergent in this conversation that what I, that I think this is on the tip of the field. Hmm. You know, that therapeutic presence will just be a common part of psychotherapy training in across CBT, across EFT, across DBT, across all sorts of therapies that this yeah. is, that presence is foundational in psychotherapy training and that common factor or that sense of, relational component is essentially trained rather than just named as important. Mm -hmm. um, the other is probably, you know, probably the relationship around neuroscience and mm. psychotherapy. I mean, it's already really impacted a lot yeah. and being able to use more neuroscience to individually tailor um, therapy rather than we do this one approach for this type of thing or so on. What does this person need being able to uh, maybe them have the devices where they can see in the brain what's happening when they emote more, when they do a practice, when they're in this relational, getting to know their emotional world through knowing their neural world. I mean, right now to get a spec scan or an fMRI or a PET scan, you have to kind of really be in a hospital or a research environment that has that, but to have more accessibility to reading what's happening in the brain, to understand what's happening emotionally, because we are so integrated, right? And I think in some ways, neuroscience is saying what Eastern traditions have said for a long time, but being able to see it in real time and for clients and therapists to be able to use that would be really, um, I think really a huge aspect. I mean, we already know about neuroplasticity um, neurogenesis that we can develop new neurons right just through good therapy and good therapy and relationships where our emotions are mapped onto our brain and how that to be able to read that I think all of that that's that's a big one mm. um, that's interesting yeah I hope that happens I was talking to a buddy of mine earlier and he was saying man like sort of what you're saying right like that ability to sort of um get a better understanding of what's happening in the brain and then really tailor therapy to certain types of people absolutely would be really helpful and maybe related yeah. to that this is a last area like tech the use of technology right i mean look at this pandemic has has definitely for me made me realize i can be present on screen right mm -hmm. i wasn't so sure i was asked to write a chapter a few years ago on presence in online therapy and i declined now I'm working with them because <laughs> you know, it's possible but using technology in other ways right not just in online therapy but technology to support some of the psychotherapy we're doing that it's not just two people in an office talking there are a lot more things that can support us and I think there's a lot to look out for in that way yeah 
Yeah, there's a lot of things coming. We'll, we'll see what shakes out. It's a great question, though. Yeah. Um, do you have any outcome studies on your work? I know you've done stuff with like the therapeutic alliance, but have, do you have any straight outcome studies on your work? Yeah. So we know from psychotherapy research that alliance leads to overall outcome. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of studies that have really supported that. But what there's less of is what leads to a positive alliance, right? What are the contributing factors? So some of our early research and others have replicated is that presence um, felt by the client, particularly, you know, clients who experience their therapist as present really predicts both uh, a positive therapeutic alliance as well as session outcome. And that was shown across emotion-focused therapy, across cognitive behavioral therapy, and across person-centered therapy. And there's been studies that have shown that presence felt as early as session one. So clients who feel their therapist there right from the beginning predicted overall stronger alliance in the long run, as late as session 16, depending on the length of the session. And in this particular research study, that was the long run. I realized psychotherapy relationships tend to be longer sometimes. So that's one very strong area. Um, there's also, as I said before, there's research showing that um, therapists who do a five minute practice prior to session leads to a stronger therapeutic alliance as well as um, stronger session outcome. And there's uh, research around training. There's research around empathy too, that presence is distinct from empathy, right? They're not the same thing. You know, we need to be, we can be present without being empathic, but we can't be empathic without being present. Mm. It's you know, to first be fully open and receptive in order to really feel the other, understand the other. And our research has shown that presence is distinct from empathy and yet predicts empathy. And there's been a number of people who have done research um, around, as I said before, trainability. Yeah. That that's therapist, sorry, that therapeutic presence is trainable through, you know, particular training programs, mindful self-compassion practices, um, loving kindness practices, mindfulness practices, improv, um, different kinds of Those ways of to be able to train. There's a lot of, you asked me before, I just want to name this around the training in the most recent book, the blue one, Practical Guide to Cultivating Therapeutic Presence. There's a lot of exercises in there. Mm we're looking at revising the first book, the yellow one um, that I did with Les Greenberg and have a chapter on kind of a sample training program for therapists. So that's, that's very interesting. A, yeah, just to support having it more in psychotherapy kind of training yeah. programs. But that's, you know, some of just a taste of some of the research that's out there yeah. in that way. Okay. So um, final two questions. First, what are you reading? What's on your nightstand? That's so interesting. I just picked up a book um, by Ron Kurtz, who, who is no longer here, but he's the developer of Hakomi. Okay. Um, no, I'm not sure what that is. Body-centered psychotherapy, um, which I want to just go back for a second and say that's another thing I see in the future, mm. is incorporating more of the body in psychotherapy. Mm. But it regardless, he's written a book called Loving Presence. So I became interested in his conception of presence. So that's actually what's on my nightstand right now. Very cool. Yeah. And if you have any closing words for students, um, including where they can find you if they want to learn more about you, what advice and closing words would you have? 
Just be compassionate with yourself. Be patient. You know, learning how to be a psychotherapist is a lifetime journey, right? It doesn't happen initially. You have to fumble. You have to not know how to do it. You have to make mistakes. That's so natural. And just to really have a lot of compassion for yourself, to work with some of those challenges, to reach out to peers and to supervisors for support and know that this is a long journey and it's great and wonderful. You're on it. You don't have to get it right, right away. And if they want it in terms of reaching, I mean, my website is probably the Sherry Geller, S-H-A-R-I-G-E-L-L-E-R.ca. I think .com might be a mystery writer, so don't go to that one. <laughs> and you can see there's a whole, there's a publication link where people can download a lot of publications. They can contact me that way. And, um, and just to really give yourself the space and the support needed to develop this beautiful pathway you're on. Well, thank you so much. I have enjoyed this so much. Thanks, uh, it's such an honor to get to talk to you. It's been great to talk to you. Really wonderful that you're doing this. And thank you for inviting me. It's been great to connect. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Take good care. <laughs>